It's 4 p.m. Stand up. It's count time. It's time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted. I am Brother L.D. Azobra. I'd like to welcome you to another edition of Count Time Podcast. Now, it's the, what we call the month that we all like to remember uh, that because of a young man by the name of Carter G. Woodson, who years ago introduced us uh, what did we now call Black History Month? So this is this is a time that we reverence, support, bring forth knowledge, information, history about those who came before us and those who are still here, who are and still doing great and wonderful things in our community. And we are fortunately here today to have just a man here who have stood for what he believed and believe what he have stood for and have fought the good fight and steady fighting. Yes, we have here a dear friend, a brother, a community leader, Dr. Press Robinson. Welcome to Caltech. Thank you. Great to be here. We'd like to we'd like to send our appreciation and thanks to you to do what you do and have been and do it better than anybody. That is fighting and taking a stand for your community. You have been doing this for a long time. It's been a while. It's been a while. You know, I'm I'm 85 years old and uh, 85. I'm 85, and I've been I've been fighting this fight now, probably since I was 20. So 20? Well, you, hold on. Now, now, what happened at 20? Well, I was in college, of course. That's when I got my first taste of, let's say, politics or being involved. I was at Mohawk College in Atlanta. And I worked on a campaign for the gentleman who ultimately won uh, the chance to be the first black alderman in the city of Atlanta. Oh, who was that? His name is Alexander. But also, okay. now, well, let me say now, we have Dr. Robinson here, who's also a, who's what, the first black school board member in the East Baton Rouge Parish of Louis, in Louisiana. That's correct. So you you made you you are history yourself. Oh. So let's let's talk about some more about the in the, what happened in Atlanta. Well, you know, uh, being at Morehouse, I I, I went to Morehouse from Morehouse man. I'm a Morehouse man. Yeah, all right, dear. the house, the house man. <laughs> all right, the house. All right dear. And um, we 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 got involved in this campaign on a small scale, not very not very big, but we wanted to do something, you know, in the community. And so we, we, we worked with him. He didn't win at the time, uh, but he set the stage for what we now know has been a great history in the city of Atlanta in terms of blacks or Negroes, as we were called in those days, you know, uh, getting into government yeah. and working in the community. Yeah, I shook hands with, uh, once again, with uh, eight, um Andrew Young, Andrew several Young. months ago. Andrew, yeah. Andrew's from Atlanta. Yeah, so yeah. he he from New Orleans originally. Yeah, I know. By yeah. way by way of Franklin, Louisiana. Yeah. His dad is yeah. from Franklin. <laughs> yeah. And uh, but uh, he was he he had a book signing at Dillard University a few months ago, and I went over there to visit with him, and he was one of those pioneers. Yes, he was. At the time that was in Atlanta. Yes, too. he was. Yes, he was. Yeah. Well, yeah. let's go last night. <clears throat> but you grew up in what they call North Baton Rouge. In an area called Scotlandville, Louisiana. Not really. No, you didn't. Okay. I grew up in Florence, South Carolina. 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 I'm from South Carolina. Um, 
I only came to Louisiana in 1963 to work at Southern University. Uh, matter of fact, I really didn't come to work at Southern. I came to get a taste of that great food that I was told about <laughs> and to see those pretty women. Okay? Let the truth be told. Huh? The truth be told. Y'all heard it. You can tell them. Now, 85, I came, you can tell them. I came, I came to stay one year. Well, just one year. One year. But to teach at Southern University. But to teach at Southern University. But you grew up in Florence, South Carolina. South Carolina. Yes. Well, that, that's where the Geeches at? The Geeches were in outside of Charleston. And so it was about 108 miles from where I was. Oh, okay. It's kind of Florida. Yeah. So we, we heard about them and occasionally saw somebody who was from the island. But we didn't really know them. Okay. Then. Yeah. There, there was an African tribe of people that had been, that been there for many, many years. As I understand it, you know, I mean, in, in my younger days, we just talk about the fact about the way they talked. Hey, Mon, how you be there today? You know, that, that kind of thing. And that's about as much as we said about them. So we knew when we were talking to one of them. But we didn't know anything about their history. About the culture. Yeah, about their culture. And so uh, it was just conversation for us. Okay. Yeah. Now, okay, now, hold on. You got to go back and tell us now. Because <clears throat> since you arrived in Louisiana, you've been in Scotlandville for a long time. I've been in Scotlandville my and, and whole front, time. And on the front line of Scotlandville. <laughs> my so, whole time. But you got to bring us back to growing up in Florence, South Florence. South Carolina. What 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 them days like? Well, that? I tell you what. My 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 dad was a sharecropper. Um, I don't know a lot about my grandparents. I don't know if they were slaves, or my great grandparents were slaves. Probably my great grandparents for sure. Probably my grandparents. My parents, I don't think so. They were born around 1917, so I don't think they were no, slaves. No, they were. Um, but my dad was a sharecropper, and you know that was the outgrowth of slavery. When um, slavery ended, a lot of people didn't know what to do or where to go, so they stayed where they were on the plantations. And out of that, I mean, there was no money, there was no credit, there was nothing. So landowners were looking for people to work, and the slaves were looking to make a living, so they came up with this sharecropper. Uh, idea. Concept. Okay. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, basically, sharecropping means that you 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 work the farm and you raise the uh, crops and you share the rewards with the landowner. And that's what my dad was. But it ended up being one sided. Um, it didn't have to be. My dad didn't make a lot of money, of course, but I don't think that he was ever in a situation where he was in a great deal of debt to the landowner because he was able to pay off his debts at the end of each growing season. Oh, okay. You know, if he wasn't, he never told me about it. So I'm assuming that he didn't. He, he only had a sixth grade education, but he was good with numbers, mm. you know, and he had good common sense. And so he made out quite well, I think. Um, and I, we lived on a farm until I was about 15. How many sisters and brothers? Yeah. I had one half-sister, I call her my half-sister, she was really a cousin of mine, but she lived with us and my mom and dad raised her, so I call her my half-sister, Okay. but I'm an only child. 
Now, what was your dad's name? My dad's name was Prince. Prince? Prince. Robinson. Prince Robinson. And what was your mother's name? Viola. Viola, okay. okay. Yeah. Viola <clears throat> Isaiah. Like Isaiah in the Bible. Oh, okay. At least I think it's like Isaiah in the Bible. <laughs> Sometimes when I do ancestry, they spell it differently. Uh, that's you know? true. That's true. Yeah, so I'm not sure how it's supposed to be spelled. <laughs> now, but so you grew up in a, a very small family. That's unusual. Very small family, especially on a farm. Yeah, that's very unusual. Because on a farm, you need lots of people to work. Mm -hmm. So we had to rely upon the village concept. And that is, when it came time for us to do what we needed to do, plant harvest or whatever, we had to rely on our neighbors. And when our neighbors' time came, we went and helped them. Okay. And that's how we got that accomplished. Now, what, what did y'all grow back in the days? Cotton, tobacco, corn, and probably peas. So y'all kept regular crops coming every, every, every year? Every year, every year. And of course, we raised all our food. Uh, the only thing that we probably needed to buy was flour because we didn't raise our own wheat, at least not initially. We mm -hmm. did later, um, you know, but we raised our own hogs, our own chickens. Uh, we didn't eat beef because the only beef you had was milk cow <laughs> and you didn't kill your milk cow. <laughs> what was more important, the beef or the milk cow? Nah, oh, the milk one, the man. Milk oh, the milk one. <laughs> and you only had one. You know, if somebody had two milk cows, that was probably a big family, you know. We had one milk cow, and she provided all the milk that we needed, and the butter, and all that. So, so you 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 did all the churning to make butter. You have to do all this kind of stuff. There wasn't no churning, Lyman. <laughs> it was putting that milk in the jar, man, sitting down shaking, shaking that it, doggone thing, until it separated. And it took sometimes days of shaking to get that butter to come out of that milk. <laughs> Oh, I hated that chore, man. So you had to sit, you, so you was the shaker then? I was a shaker. So that's why you're still a mover to shaker now. Huh? <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe so. Maybe so. Maybe so. But I had firmly in my mind that I did not want to be a farmer. So what's left for me to do? My mom was my greatest champion. She said to me, I said to my dad early on, my son's going to go to school. He's going to go to school every day. He's going to go to school for the full term every year. I don't care how you do it, and, but you tell the boss man that that's what's going to happen. I don't know what kind of resistance my dad may have uh, received or if he received any or how he told the guy or what, but I went to school every day. And I only worked in the fields maybe when I came home after school Usually not, because I had to study, but during the summer. And it made a difference in my life, because I got a chance to get an education. That was my way off the farm. Now, did you, when you started going to school <clears throat> as a young man, what, what, so you're talking about from the first grade? First grade. Did you realize the value of education? No, no, no. Uh, I didn't realize that until I was probably in high school. Because, I mean, I'm saying, what point do you realize that I'm not going back in that, play, in that field? When I was in high school. When you was in high school. I was in high school. Because it, it became real to you. It became real. Because oh. I had worked in the fields until I was 15. Uh, and then we moved away and moved to town. But uh, I did everything. I picked the cotton. 
I broke corn. I mean, I picked uh, red peppers. <laughs> uh, I plowed behind the mule. We didn't have horses, we had mules, mm-hmm. you know. I plowed the fields. You know, I had to fertilize the, uh, the plants and whatnot, the tobacco and the corn, the cotton. I did all of that until I was about 15. And I made up my mind that that was not what I wanted to do the rest of my life. So, so, that's enough to steer you up, right? Yes, sir. Going out there yes, every sir. day on the regular day. and yeah. watching your dad. Yeah. We worked from sunup to sunset. Sunup to sunset, except in the wintertime, of course, you know, when it's too cold. In those days, you had four distinct seasons in South Carolina. I mean, when it got cold, it stayed cold. Oh, and so, you know, we would, we would hunt, uh, chop wood and stuff like that during the winter, but, you know, you, there was no planting or harvesting or anything during the winter. Um, my dad was an avid hunter. He loved, man, he'd go out with a single-shot twenty-two rifle, come back with a pocket full of squirrels. <laughs> Pocket full of squirrels. Huh? Squirrel in every pocket. <laughs> and man, my mom knew how to cook them. Oh, squirrel meat, that was oh, good meat. Oh man, that's good eating. Okay. That's good eating. You either ate it in the morning for breakfast with, with uh, grits, or you could eat it uh, dinner time over rice. So, now you talking, most people, unless you're from the country, you know what a good squirrel oh, yes, tastes like. Oh, yes, sir. Now, most people thought you probably going to see rabbits. <laughs> rabbits were okay, but they weren't the sweetest squirrel. Ooh, so squirrel now, meat was sweet? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, oh, then. yeah. Had a different texture than rabbit, too. You know? Yeah. So you still eat squirrel? No, I haven't eaten a squirrel in a long time. I'm afraid to worry about eating these things around here because... <laughs> I don't know what they're eating and where they are, man, you know. My dad would go, you know, sit by the hickory tree because, you know, squirrels like hickories, oh, okay. hickory nuts. And he'd, he'd get up early in the morning before daylight, get to the tree before the squirrels got there, sat there and wait. Wait no there, brother. And when they come and take that rifle, pow. Well, you know, rifle doesn't sound very loud, you know. Shotgun's too loud. Okay. It scare them all away. The he'd knock them off, man, come home, squirrel in every pocket. <laughs> he was a great shot. He's he a great shot. But what about you? Were you good? Could you shoot? A little bit, but not like him. Not like him. Because you, you wouldn't plan on making a living doing no. that. You, no. You put in your mind, no. I ain't got I didn't, I ain't know, got I didn't know what I was going to do. But my dad said to me, I guess when I was about 10th grade, 11th grade, he says, if you want to go to college, we'll see that you go. Well, I mean that was a that was that was something to encourage me, but I knew they couldn't send me to college. They didn't have no money. They didn't have any money. So when I got ready to graduate from high school, what's the name of the high school you did? Wilson High School in Florence, South Carolina. I um I went out that summer. I got myself a job. Matter of fact, the year before I graduated, I drove school bus. Taking yeah. kids to school. Now, you was too young back then. To well, I mean, I was, what, I was 17. I was 17. You, you didn't have to have a license, did you? Oh, yeah, the state yeah, had to get yeah, me okay, a license. Okay. Yeah. You know, a lot, yeah. lot of rules with likes back then, so. Well, I mean, you know, that was kind of a normal thing for uh, seniors and juniors going to high school to drive a school bus. Uh, you know, nowadays you have grown-ups doing it, but. Growing up, weren't doing that then, back in those days. Yeah, there wasn't a whole bunch of money involved. No. Them people was no. working the field. No. There wasn't a whole bunch of money. Um, 
I can't remember how much they were paying me a month to drive the school bus. But for a kid who was at home with no expenses, that was good money, man. Uh, okay. You know? That was, that was a regular check coming in. Yeah. And then that summer, I went out and I, I, I went to one of the local restaurants and uh, I told the manager I, I wanted a job because I wanted to make enough money to. You know, I had a scholarship to Morehouse, but it was only a tuition scholarship. So it only covered tuition. I still had to do my room and board, my books, and all of that. So I went to this guy and I said, I don't, I'd like to have a job. He says, well, have you ever waited tables before? No, sir, I have not, but I learned fast. And for some reason or another, he gave me a job. And I made really good money working there. Matter of fact, I made more money working at that restaurant than my dad made working full time. So what type of restaurant was it? It was just a chicken, fried chicken kind of restaurant. You know, that families went out to eat. Um, but people liked me for some reason. And they would, you know, leave me nice tips. I'd make sure I took care of them when they came. And um, So you learned then there was a value in taking yeah, care of people. Huh? Yeah, yes. And when I was a young guy, and they looked at me, and I was the only eight, 17, 18-year-old kid working at the restaurant. It was it was owned by one of us. Or? No, 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 no. It was white owned okay. and white operated, and most of the people who ate there were white. But matter of fact, all of them were white. I've never seen a black person eat there. It was a segregated restaurant. It was segregated. Oh but, yeah. But you were working there. Well, all of us were, were were waiters and stuff were working there. We were all black. The cooks were black. The waiters were black. Everybody was black except the manager and the owner and the people who came to eat. But we could wait on the tables. Uh-huh. You could serve. Oh yeah, we could serve. You know, we've been doing that for what? For many, many years, right? Uh-huh. So it was just a continuation. But I made more money than my dad working full time. And he had a family to take care of and I didn't have anybody. So that's how I was able to take care of myself for the first couple of years at Morehouse. And then about my, my uh, junior year, I just ran out of money. And uh, Dr. Benjamin E. Mays was president of Morehouse at the time. I went to him and I said, Dr. Mays, um, I'm, 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 I'm out of money and if I don't get some help, I'm going to have to leave school. So you went to talk to the president of Morehouse? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Dr. Benjamin? Benjamin E. Mays. 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 And he said, well, let me think about it. Let me see what I can do. I might be able to do a little something. I don't know. But, but how many students you had on campus then? I would think maybe 500 or so. And what, what was your maybe major? even 700. And what was your major at the time? Chemistry. Chemistry? Yes. Hmm. And a few weeks later, he came back to me and he says, well, I was able to find a little something to help you out. And he gave me a little money, gave me enough to, to carry me through that semester. And I told him, I said, if I can get through this semester, you won't have to do this again. And he didn't. I worked every summer. Usually I went to New York, got a job. You went to New every York? Summer, every summer. That was expensive to live in New York. Well, I lived with relatives. Okay, yes. My half-sister was in Brooklyn. Okay. My cousin was in, in uh, I mean, sorry, my half-sister was in New York. And, well, she was in Brooklyn, too. My uh, cousin was in uh, Brooklyn, so I lived with him one, one, one summer. What was his name? Um, his name was Willie D. 
Willie, Willie D. Harrison. Sorry, what them pimp names? Yeah, no, he, <laughs> Willie D. Harrison. Not no Willie yeah. D. Not no Billy D. No, right, not D. Billy D. Okay. Willie D. Harrison. So I lived with my sister uh, one summer. I lived with him one summer. Then I lived with my uncle once in not in Long Island. So that took me through my house. And I made enough money during the summers to pay the difference between uh, you know what I was getting, because I worked also during the year while I was at in school. Um, and you worked, you met, you uh, majored in chemistry. Majored in chemistry. And you had to be had to put some work in to make. I put this some work in, man. I'd be in that laboratory working, and I see my friends out there on the lawn with their girlfriends holding hands and <laughs> having fun. I'm in a chemistry lab. You got, you got but to you know what? I think it paid off. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, then. Okay. It paid off. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I left Morehouse. I got a uh, an assistantship at Howard University, and um, so got you, my master's and my PhD at Howard through that process. So from Morehouse, Atlanta, you end up in D.C. D.C. <clears throat> what was that experience like? It was a strange one, really. And I say strange because there were plenty of young ladies in Washington, D.C. But you only saw them going to work in the morning, coming home in the afternoon. And then you wonder, what happened to them? Where did they all go? You can't find them, you know what I mean? You know, I'm, I'm 21, 22 years old. You know, I want to have some fun. Because you, you, you just sacrifice at Morehouse. Yeah. You, you work year-round. Yeah. yeah, yeah, because at Morehouse, you know, I'm right next door to Spelman and Clark. But at Spelman, you could only go see the girls when they said you could come. And that usually meant Sunday afternoon for a couple of hours. Okay. Now, Clark was open. You could go over there and see the girls at any time. But Clark also was a co-ed school, so they had their boys there too, you know. But anyway. So you had to put in some work to find a woman there. Yeah, yeah. Well, but I mean, there were plenty of women. There were plenty of them. But they just weren't available to you. And I guess if you didn't work in government or whatever, I didn't have access to them. And of course, I could go to a club and, and there were women there I could meet, but I didn't. That wasn't what I was brought up. Not, to not quite sure what you're gonna get there. No, well, not on that, but that's not the way I was brought up. Oh, okay, I was brought up in the church and you know religious, and I looked for a certain kind of person, and so I wasn't satisfied with what I met in in the club, and I met some other women in in D.C., but they still weren't what I was looking for. That's why I was so happy to come to Louisiana. <laughs> For that one year, so, and see what this, so it's, this friend it's, of so, mine from New Orleans is talking about. No, 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 who was your friend from New Orleans? You know, I can't remember his name. <laughs> but you had a, a friend. Who, but he was a student in, at Howard University in the chemistry department. He says, "Press man, you just got you got to go to Louisiana, man." He says they got the best food in the world and the prettiest women. <laughs> so, so I was going to come down and stay one year. I had a job waiting for me in Virginia. Okay, now, why did you, why, what, what brought you to the Louisiana, what kind of work? To work at Southern. Okay. It's Dr. Vanden White, who's the chair of the chemistry department at Southern, found out that I, had a, I was getting a PhD in chemistry. He was building a chemistry department at Southern. And That's the same, same one that worked at LSU? Dr. White? No, you think of Julian White, probably, okay, okay. who's an architect. Right, yeah, yeah. 
But Dr. Van White was at Southern. He was, he was a young dude trying to build a chemistry department. And he did. In the 1970s and 80s, we probably had the strongest chemistry department anywhere in the South. LSU didn't have it. No other school had what we had at Southern. We had about 30 faculty members. About 27 of them had PhDs, and they're all under 30 years old. Oh, now, now what year was that? Well, in the 70s and 80s, you know, 70s, by the time the 80s came around, we were a little older, but we still had that strong department. Uh, you couldn't find that many PhDs in a chemistry department anywhere else. So Southern University, had, matter of fact, the architecture department was, was strong at Southern too at that time. Architecture and engineering. engineering. Yeah, and biology, but not as strong as chemistry. Chemistry was, I mean, we were on top, man. We were on top. We were, we were one hell by department. So Dr. White made that happen. Dr. White he, made he recruited that the best and the finest. He did. He did. So let's go. So now that one year you were supposed to be coming here, then heading back to Virginia. Virginia. <clears throat> now, now let's let's talk. about what happened to that one year when you when you showed up in Louisiana? In nine months I was engaged. <laughs> I went to the dentist one day. Remember Valerian Smith? Dr. Smith, yeah, Dr. Valerian Dr. Smith. Dr. Valerian Smith is my dentist. I went to his office. He, he has an assistant in his office. That was it. Oh, oh so you met the assistant at Dr. Valerian Smith's office. office. Yes, what was her name? Ruth Washington. Ruth Washington. Yep. <laughs> yep, I sure did. <laughs> I came in September 1963. October 1964, I got married. So, October the 9th. So within, within one year, all this happened. <laughs> all right. So so Virginia. I, no, I moved in this house in 1965. You've been in the same place. Right here, since 1965. Park Vista for, since 1965. That's right, in this same house. <laughs> so that, that was a great year for you then, huh? Man, everything happened so fast. I don't know where I was going to come in. But you know what? I don't, I don't have any questions about any of that. I'm perfectly happy with my life. I'm perfectly happy with the woman that I married. I'm perfectly happy with my kids. I mean, I'm pleased. pleased. How many children came out of that? Uh, Two boys, uh, and they're doing well. What's their name? Robin. Robinson is my young one. Okay. Press Jr. is my oldest. Okay. Yeah. Robin Robinson. Robin Robinson. <laughs> That's interesting. After Robin Hood. Oh, okay. Okay. Then. <laughs> Well, your your mom and dad was able to be a part of that and enjoy that with you? Well, my mom and dad, of course, were still in South Carolina. And we went back often to see them, you know, did every it, Christmas. Was, did it come to the wedding at that time? No. I see, because they didn't do a lot of travel. We eloped. Well, you couldn't wait, did We I? eloped, man. You, so, well, let me tell you the, let me tell you the well, reason you, behind you, that. Okay. You, uh, you, you my thought was this. I said to, to Ruth, you know, we can have a wedding and spend a lot of money, or we can save our money and build our own home. You was thinking like that? She said, well, let's build our home. So we sneaked off and got married. <laughs> <laughs> One <laughs> weekend, <laughs> spent our honeymoon in New Orleans. Oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Called call her mom and dad from the, from the hotel to tell them that we'd gotten married. 
<laughs> How did that go? Well, they were a little mad at us at first, <laughs> but they were happy for us, you know. Right, they were happy right, for us. Right. They never held it against us, you know. But we wanted to save our money. Why waste all that money on a wedding when we can build our home? Yeah, because money was hard to come by back yeah, then. For real, for it real. Was. Now, how did your mom and dad take it? Well, my mom and dad was in South Carolina. So they didn't. They, they, they weren't going to come anyway. Okay. okay. But we called them too from the hotel. Okay. And they were fine with it. They were fine with it. They had not met. They had not met Ruth before, you know. And you, you and you've been happy ever, ever happy. What that is? Yeah. So ever, ever, since. Ever, ever since then. Ever since then. I mean, so that's the best way. Yeah, I have no you. regrets. That worked for you. I have no regrets whatsoever. I mean, I thought it was a waste of money because I, you know, I've seen I've seen people get married, spend tons of money, and don't stay together a year or two or three years, and then they break up, and they wasted all this money and what they got to show for it. Nothing. Mm -hmm. At least we would have a house of our own. And you know, we're still here. Now, now, where was Ruth from? Baton Rouge. So she, where, where her, who was her family? Uh, the Washingtons lived on <clears throat> south, uh, right around the corner from um, Charlotte Baptist Church. Okay, okay. 13th Street. 13th. Okay. South 13th Street. What what about Ruth that captured you, that pulled you like this? You knew you knew that was going to be your wife when you saw her? No, no, oh, okay, no, then. no. I mean, I didn't even know she would even talk to me, you know. I mean, I, she, was a, she was a receptionist and the assistant. And, of course, uh, when I made an appointment, she would make the appointment. And when I'm sitting in the office waiting for the doctor, because, you know, Dr. Smith uh, had lots of people who just walked in, uh, I just watched her, you know, the way she carried herself and the way she talked and the way she took care of her business at the office. Just, it impressed me. But she was a pretty girl. So I wondered, I said, I wonder if she'll talk to me, you know. I wonder what, and if I talked to her, what, what would be a reaction? I, I, I didn't know. Well, you're the professor, you know. You yeah, know. but you know, you, you still have those insecurities, right, you know. Right. And I slowly approached it, you know, and she kind of responded the right way. And before you know it, we were oh, she, seeing oh, each other. Oh, she bit it. Huh? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah. When I, got, when I got engaged, I wasn't thinking about getting married. That was Ruth's idea. <laughs> 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 we, were, we were talking about something one night, and I said something about next year. She said, you mean you're going to come see me another whole year? Uh oh put something on your mind, huh? And I thought about that. I said, well, I mean, I don't have to. <laughs> I, don't know what we, I don't know what it was we were talking about. And that's how I got engaged. I mean, we got engaged that, that night. Oh, you, so you, you didn't have no ring with you? No, no, oh, no, good. No, no, that, no, no, that was late. I came late. So you just a commitment. Just a commitment. Yeah, just okay. a commitment. And uh, it was just funny how that happened, man. I wasn't even thinking about getting married. I mean, I was having fun. So did, did Louisiana pan out to be all your friend told you it was going to be? Yeah. I love the food, man. <laughs> I love the food. And the people here are so much different. They're so much friendlier. I mean, compared to Carolina, well, Carolina, I was on the farm most of the time in Carolina, or in high school. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of interaction for me okay, except yeah. my colleagues in school. I had one really good friend who was from Atlanta, Georgia. 
um, and we spent a lot of time together. But other than that, there wasn't a whole lot of getting together. All that happened afterwards. But in Mohouse and in D.C. is where I found that people just weren't all that friendly, especially in D.C. I mean, I, I used to run around with a guy who was born and raised in D.C., and he and I both together had trouble finding. <laughs> but I came to Louisiana, man, that changed overnight just like that. Bang. I mean. You fit in. Everybody was friendly. I mean, you could speak to a girl and she wouldn't chop your head off. I mean, she would smile at you or whatever. It was acceptance immediately. And so that was so much different. I guess that's why it didn't take me long to get married. You know. It just it just rolled me right in. <laughs> but also, you when you came to Louisiana and you you literally, literally have thrived. Now that means that you was at Southern in 1972 when that shooting took place. I was. You got to tell us your story on that. Then I got to hear a little bit about that. Well, you know, Lyman, that 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 really surprised me because I, along with Dick Turnley. <clears throat> State Representative Dick Turner. Yes, yeah. and State Senator Dick Turnley. Senator, yeah. Yeah. We were a group of community people working with the students. We were trying to advise them how to get what they want, but not jeopardize themselves or get in trouble. We, we were meeting with them two, three times a week. We met the night before that demonstration with them until about one, two o'clock in the morning. There was no mention that they were gonna go up to the administration building the next day. I didn't even know it was gonna happen or was happening. Otherwise, I would have been up there with them. Hmm. Just to make sure. And maybe I would have been the one that got shot. Cause I would have been there. I had a class, I went to my class, I got out of class at noon, I came home to get something to eat, and I got my lunch, I ate it, I was on the way back to the campus, about 1, 1.30, something like that. I'm listening to the radio, probably WXOK or whatever, and they were talking about a demonstration going on. And I said, oh, that must be at Suno, because Suno's students were demonstrating at the same time. I said, they're nothing going on in Baton Rouge, because I had met with the students the night before. So I'm supposed to know what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. I get back to the campus, <clears throat> and sure enough, I'm ordered inside by the police. And I'm saying, what the heck is happening? Get inside the building. Get inside the building. Why are they talking to me like that? I'm a faculty member. I'm just trying to find what's going on. They riding down the street in this big bertha, they call it. It's, <laughs> what was that armored car they had up here? Telling me, get inside. That's when I found out that the students were demonstrating and that there had been a shooting. But again, if I had known that they were going to be there, most likely I would have been there. <laughs> Now, with them. I, I had opportunity to, to interview uh, Sakara 
Harnett. Her name was Charlene yes, yes. Uh, Cheatham at she the time. Was, she was one of the. She was one of the people. Right, <clears throat> and she told us that they had not planned to demonstrate. What happened the night? The night must have been the night after that y'all finished those meetings. Three, four o'clock in the morning, people somebody knocked on the door, and they arrested the the leaders. That's right. So That's what she happened. said she was in she was in St. Gabriel. Uh, women prison the night, the the morning that that took place. <clears throat> so the students went there to find out why did they arrest them and right. to release them. Right. So they, cause they was they was not even involved. They was just, and that's when all that took that's place. That's when all that took place. So it's almost like it was a setup, you know. To you they know. arrested uh, Fred um, Prezon, Prezon, Ricky, Ricky, and Ricky Hill. Hill. They sure did. Yeah. About two o'clock in the morning. So they said that that's what happened. That's, that's why what happened. they and <clears throat> they wanted Netterville to go get him out of jail. Right. They they asked the president to go get him, and he went called. Called. But you know, they was it's kind of they feel it must have been a setup to arrest those people because they's not they was not even a part of no. that. What that took. And that's place. why I didn't know about it. We didn't know. We did not. Uh, as advisors, we didn't know that they were going to do anything like that. And that's why we didn't know because they didn't tell us. So you and she, they mentioned when I interviewed that some of the, uh, the advisors and say it was all young people, you know, young young professors. Young professors. So yeah. you was one of them. I was there. one of those young professors. Oh, okay, then that's pretty I was one of those young professors. Well, they gonna they gonna be elated to know that you are here to tell that story. Yep, I was one of those. Because they said they would they they plans were not to cause no problem. They thought they wanted to. What was they What was they what was their dispute about? Do you remember that? Well, they were trying to tell the state that they were uh, short and southern in its academic and financial support. Okay, uh, you know LSU was getting so much more money than Southern, and they were saying this was not fair. They also wanted some changes in how things were handled on campus, and. The president, of course, of the university and administrators could do something about that. They couldn't do a lot about the finances, but they could certainly change some of the things that they were doing on campus. You know, Southern had a strong academic program when I got here in 63. They had a strong academic program. So I didn't see that as being a problem. The students were primarily unhappy about, as I said, the financial situation because we weren't getting what we needed to get. Okay, financially, and they didn't like some of the rules and regulations that the administration had set up, and they wanted to change how they were doing things. That was the basic things. Now, of course, as the things stretched on, there were more demands. You know, uh, as people thought about it, and other people got involved, and okay. that sort of thing. Yeah, but uh, you know, I, I I was when I came to Southern. One of the first questions I asked was. What is Southern doing in the Scotlandville community? And I was kind of discouraged from being too active in the Scotlandville community. In so many words, I was told, you know, we, we you stay up here and let Scotlandville take care of itself. Well, I didn't think that was right. Mm. I didn't think that was right. Um, so I kept asking these questions and asking these questions, and nothing was happening. So I think that was one of the reasons I got involved with the students. I'm not, I don't remember exactly how I got to, to be involved, but I, but I was. And um, 
I can recall that in 1972, a group of engineers in the College of Engineering put together the first black-owned and operated engineering consulting firm south of Washington, south of Atlanta, and east of California. I was the only non-engineer a part of that group. What was the name of that group? Minority Engineers of Louisiana, better known as Mel Inc. Hmm. They're still in existence? Still in existence today. <clears throat> I retired from Mel Inc. in 2013. Well, I'm just, just glad that you're here to share that story. Let's, let's move further because you, you've been involved with so much. So you end up <clears throat> living in the Scotlandville area where and you was you saw a lot of injustices and a lot of what do you call that taxation without representation absolutely so that's probably what encouraged you to run for east baton rouge parish school board what what brought that about well you know not really what i saw was that my students coming to southern was having an awful time with chemistry but they were having trouble with chemistry because they couldn't do arithmetic and think. So that started early. So my thought was, you know, if I can impact the public schools and get students to be able to do arithmetic and to think critically, then when they get to my class at Southern, they won't have this problem. So that's what, that's what initially got me thinking about that, okay? You, want, you truly want to better the, student. the, the, the system in which, which we're going to help better the students. That's right. That was your whole purpose. That was my focus, whole purpose. Which was great. That really was but great. But then I wasn't really thinking about running for the school board. I was thinking about getting involved with the school system and doing that, you know, finding a way to do that. But then one day somebody said to me, Press, why don't you run for the school board, man? Because I was a part of a group called SAC, Scotlandville Area Advisory Council, and that was being led by Dick Turnley. I was the educational coordinator. And why don't you run for the school board? It says, they only meet once a month, and that's it. That's all there is to it. <laughs> I wish I could find that person that told me that. <laughs> could they have ever been so wrong? Well, it took up all your time. All my time. <laughs> I remember many nights we met to one, two, three o'clock in the morning <laughs> trying to solve these dead cases and stuff like that, you know, and, and just take care of regular business of school board. Because at the time, you came on board, you was the first. I was the first. And that was in, what, 1980? 1980. I mean, that's not long ago. September 13, 1980. You came on board. You I ran and you board. won. I won. And the only one, and still the only one of us until you, our, our girl, what the name was, showed up. Eva Lagarde. Eva Lagarde showed up. That was four, four years later, huh? No. Eva. Well, let me, let me, let me back up okay. a little bit and say how we got there. All right. In 1960. In 1969, somewhere around there, I, along with Lawrence Mork and several other people, 
sued the school board for single-member districts because we already knew by then that we couldn't win a ward-wide election. You know, we used to have three wards, Ward 1, 2, and 3. And, you know, whites outnumbered us. And so whoever the white was that running would always win. So we, I, along with Lawrence and others, Lawrence was appointed to the school board by Governor Edwin Edwards. And he served for several months until the election came up. And when the election came up, he lost out to Hotsall. That really cemented in our mind. There's no way we're going to win worldwide. We got to have single member districts. So we sued the school board again. In 1977, 76, 77, Dick Turnley was in the legislature. Joe Delpit was in the legislature. They were able to convince the legislature to push for single member districts. Our suit was in the Fifth Circuit in New Orleans. So the school board felt like they were getting pressure from both sides. They were going to get it either from the court telling them they got to do it or from the legislature telling them they had to do it. So we're sitting down at the school board in 1977, 78, negotiating. Walter Dumas, attorney Walter Dumas, was my attorney. He came over to me and he said, look, the school board is willing to give the plaintiffs one additional seat on the board, okay? And I said to him, if we only get one seat, then there's going to be a fight between Scotlandville, Eden Park. Who will get that seat? And South Baton Rouge. Tell them we'll take the deal if they give us three. He went back to him and told him that. And after a few more hours, they agreed to the three seats. September of 1980, Eva ran South Baton Rouge. I ran in Scotlandville. Frank Milligan ran in Eden Park. Frank Milligan, okay. I won on the primary. Frank and Eva had to go to the runoff. Okay, then. Because of that, I became the first black member elected school. <laughs> okay, then. All right. I mean, fate just had it happen that way. It wasn't anything I did necessarily, you know, because we all ran at the same time. And then in 1985, Sarah Edwina Prescott, who was vice president of the school board at that time, died. I decided that I, maybe my time to run for, I mean, for be vice president. I mean, I had, I had done my job. I worked hard on the DC. Been your five years. I knew what was going on. I, you know, I could handle myself. I had proven that. So I ran for the uh, vice presidency. I won that vice presidency. So I became the first black vice president of the board. And then after serving a couple of years as the vice president um, in 85, 86, I ran to be the president of the board. Mike McCleary from Baker was the president. He had served his two years, and it was customary after two years, the president steps down, the vice president steps up. But it didn't work quite that way. He decided he wanted to stay in presidency. Because he won't give it up. He won't give it up. <clears throat> so I ran against him. The vote was seven to five in my favor. 
because most of the whites voted for him. Uh, once that happened, all the other board members except one changed their votes for me. So it was a 10-1 vote for me to be president of the board. The one person that would not change his vote was T.H. Montgomery from Central. And you know why that was the case. No, I don't know why was well, that. Well, I mean, Central was considered the mecca of, of segregation in East Baton Rouge Parish. He just couldn't bring himself to vote, either for me as vice president or president. So the vote was 10-1 each time. So I became the first president, black president of the board. But the thing I think, and, you know, and that was a, a real test. I didn't have any problems about or, or questions about whether I could handle myself or not. I knew I could, and I knew I could handle the board because I had been president of the uh, Homeowners Association out here. I had been president of the Legal Aid Society of Baton Rouge, which had 50 or 60 lawyers on it, and I did just fine with them. partner Jim Wayne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had been on the board of directors of, of Community Advancement and Cooperated. You know, I knew my way around and I could handle myself, and I knew that. Uh, and I knew I had a good education, so I wasn't afraid. Now, you're a Morehouse man. I'm a Morehouse man, that's right. <laughs> you got afraid of what? But there were people who had, you know, questions about whether I could do it or not. But I think I proved myself. But what surprised me was in 1994, this is when CAPE elected nine new members of the school board. I just felt like because they had the majority that they were going to elect one of their members to be president of the board. We went on a retreat up in uh, East Feliciana Parish. And while we were up there, the, the news people finally came around and at the end of the retreat, and they said, Press, we think that you ought to talk to the media. I said, well, why, why me? Because we think you can best handle it. Oh, okay, all right, well, y'all want me to tell them. So we decided what I was going to tell them, and I did. But then they said, and we think that you ought to be president. That surprised me. I was just sure that one of them would be president of the board. I served those two terms, and then they elected me for a second two terms. So I, I served three terms as president of the board. Of East Baton Rouge Parish East School Baton Rouge Board. Mm -hmm. The first time, 80, 85, 86, and then 94 through 97, 98, something like that. Yeah. But yeah. you but you also you, you spoke a couple of things back then. <clears throat> I got a chance to meet you. Through Walter Doom, which I used to stop by the restaurant. Right, exactly. You know, they, uh, Buffalo Way. That's Buffalo exactly Way, right. Off of Lee Drive. That's right. You, you and Walter would stop by there right. on the right. regular and have, right. have lunch with that's me. That's right. And I just got, that's why I got to know you because you were one of them kind of, you and Walter, both of y'all was two cool guys. <laughs> <laughs> two cool, classy brothers. I mean, that's just, it was just impressive. You know, y'all yeah. was, was truly moving and shaking. But y'all stop in and holler at me. You know, I never looked right. at it like that. You know, we were just doing our thing. You know, we were just doing what we could. But y'all made special effort to come out to my restaurant. Oh, that yeah, was, absolutely. That was way out of the way. It was out of the way. I'm in, I'm in all the way deep South Bad Room. Yeah, I know. But we want to support you. And y'all did. 
And I truly appreciate that because I yeah. remember y'all coming out there having fun. And yeah. Plus y'all let me y'all give me a head up on what was going on. Y'all was pretty. Y'all let me know. I didn't. Yeah. I was clueless. Y'all y'all was putting me up on because I was like a little boy, I guess, to you all. I hear y'all. Yeah, y'all was kind of putting me up on game. <clears throat> but you fought for East Baton Rouge parents. All y'all did. I mean, Eva Lagarde, uh, Mr. Frank Milliken. Mm -hmm. But I remember your time. You you basically spoke that. Uh, when when Baker wanted to make his exit from the East Baton Rouge Parent School System, right. what what how, how did what what that was about, and what did, what was your thought on that back then? I'm trying to think of the Mayor Baker's name. Uh, uh, Hanami. Han, uh, no, it wasn't Hanami. No, it wasn't Hanami. It okay. was um, I can't think of his name. It was the guy that came after Hanami. The, the one that was Mayor of Baton Rouge. Simpson? Bobby Simpson? Bobby Simpson. Okay. Bobby Simpson. Bobby Simpson was the one leading the charge. Well, I understand it was Epperson that was really leading the charge, but Epperson worked for the school system, so he couldn't come out openly, so mm -hmm. Bobby. And they wanted to pull away. It was primarily about the DSEG. You know, they didn't want black kids going to the Baker schools. Um, same problem we had in these Baton Rouge Paris all over. They were fighting and fighting and fighting. I, I simply said at a board meeting one night, I said, look, let me tell you what's going to happen here, y'all. Number one, I'm against this. Obviously, I'm against it because I'm out here fighting for the desegregation of the system. And, and let me just diverge just, just, just a little bit, go back to 1970. I think the NAACP made a grave mistake because they went for desegregation of the classroom. I tried to get them in 1970 at a meeting at Baton Rouge High School. Forget about the sitting in the classroom with white kids. Ask for the resources. Get the money. Lyman, we had our, all of our schools, most of our teachers had masters or masters plus 30 degrees. You already sitting pretty. We were sitting pretty. The white, the white teachers didn't have that because they didn't need it. They didn't have it. So I'm saying, get the resources, NAACP, and keep our schools. We can, we can, we can, we can educate our own kids. That was your, that was your. That was my, that was my plea to them in 1970. That was, that was George Eames and Dr. Well, George wasn't around then. That was Dr. Darcy Bryant Dr. and Dr. some others. What is his name? Dr. The pharmacist. Yeah. The yeah. Store. yeah. Yeah. Uh, Douglas. Emmett, Emmett Douglas. Douglas. Emmett Douglas. Mm -hmm. Emmett was the, the state president. But they didn't buy that, okay? Because the Justice Department in Washington had decided that desegregation was going to be the national goal. So Baker then wanting to withdraw, I said, if Baker withdraws, if that happens, Baker will be followed by Central. Well, I'm sorry, Zachary. And then Central and then Southeast Baton Rouge. Just the way it happened. Exactly the way it's happening. Just the way it played out. It's, South Baton Rouge is the last night it's still fighting. They're still trying right now. So you spoke that 40 years ago? 40 years ago. <clears throat> but also you said that desegregation is the worst thing that happened? To black people since slavery. <sighs> why why, why you say that? Look at where we are today. We're fighting the same fights today that we fought in 1960. 
and even before that. So the desegregation is a form of, of slavery for us because it keeps us from doing what we could have done ourselves. Had we gotten the monies that we needed to have to run our schools, we'd be 30 years ahead of where we are today as a race of people. That's why I made that statement. I still believe that today, that that was the worst thing that happened to us in slavery. You can't get that back. Can't get it back. Can't get it back. And we, we, we still don't have a unitary school system in this parish. And no. in many parts of the country, we don't have unitary school systems. Matter of fact, I, I read uh, somewhere you said <clears throat> that desegregation still have never happened, right? No, it hasn't. And it just gave them a chance to exit and put their program in order to get out of the system. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And now, today, the way to do that is charter schools. So that's all charter schools are? Yeah. I mean, there's some charter schools that cater to black kids. A lot of them just out there for the money. They're well, not really interested in the real education well, of know, our children. I, I tell people all the time, you go look up the word charter, it means corporation. Yeah. It's a company. Yeah. <laughs> the purpose is to make money. Yeah. And I, if they can make money while educating, that's good, but their focus ain't going to be education. It hurts my heart for us to have a charter school advocate as president of the East Baton Rouge Parish School Board right now. He's a, he's, a, he's a charter school advocate. The charter school movement backed him in his first election and his second one. So in other words, the goal is to dismantle the public school system. When the city gave, it, gave up to the business from doing their own garbage stuff, they gave it over to a privatized. Privatized. Oh, privatization. 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 So when, 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 when every local municipality and state started getting into privatization, the first thing was the garbage bin. I mm -hmm. remember that when I was a little boy. Mm -hmm. they, they, you know, they, the city gave that up, and then it became—I mean, I forgot what the thing. Then it became uh, a met, uh, uh, healthcare. Healthcare. The last right. thing to go is education. That's right. But they—they they have already done the maintenance people at, at education. Yeah, yeah. They—they yeah. they, they privatized the, the, the maintenance, the, the janitorial work, the all that kind of the stuff. The maintenance. Yeah. yeah, they privatized all they did. that. They did. But now they privatized the education. Really, itself. it's private. They have privatized yeah. education. education. So they give it. You're giving up your power to. But the state the has an obligation to train its people. That's not that, something that you that, give that, over that, to somebody. That's, that's why you pay taxes. That's right. For them to do that. That's what I'm saying. So you can hold the state accountable. Right. And I remember, under, under, you know, I, I was, now he was my friend, and and uh, now I ain't gonna say a friend, but somebody. When I went to him, he did look out for. It was Mike Foster, governor, former governor, governor Mike Foster, because his dad looked out for me when mm -hmm. I, you know, he encouraged me to go to LSU, uh, Press Foster. But under Mike Foster leadership is when that started working towards that privatizing, what you call privatizing yeah. education. Yeah. Well, let's face it. The governor and the mayor and other officials, they don't control what happens in society. Money does. Hmm. Money does. Money talks. So the people who got the money hasn't changed what they want to do. Control. 
they want it out. Yeah. But, I mean, they've been working on this privatization thing for a long time, 50 years. It's now becoming to fruition. As a former school board individual, and seeing all that you see, and you've, you've been here for 85, and I said that you'd have made 85 trips around the sun. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that's a tough feat. You see progress in your 85 years, and you come off the plantation basically in South Carolina, you went to Atlanta, DC, now Louisiana. What do you see that the good, the bad, the ugly in your time on your, here? The good is probably technology and opportunity. There are different and better opportunities for black people in many instances. Not all. I would say that would be the good. The bad, unfortunately, and the ugly kind of go together. Hmm. And that is the more things change, the more they stay the same. <laughs> I mentioned earlier that we're still fighting the same battles that we fought in the 60s and even after Reconstruction. You know, after Reconstruction, black folk were in the seats of power. Whites systematically, by law, dealt them out of that, made it impossible for us to vote made it impossible for us to, by having the poll tax and by having us uh, uh, having to answer questions like how many jelly beans are in a jar and read the Constitution. When I first went out to register to vote, I was told I had to read and interpret the Constitution. Read and interpret it? Yeah. And I, was a, and I was a junior, I mean a sophomore in college. I read one line and the lady told me, stop, that's okay. And my mom at that time, I took her with me to vote. She had never voted in her life. That's the first time she ever got registered so you, to vote. You took your mom to I vote. I took my mom. Your mom didn't take you. You took your I mom took to vote. I took my mom. Yep. So this system, which you, which you say this system, no, I'm not putting no words in your mouth. This system made conscious efforts to keep those who was enslaved, to keep them to keep them. If you're enslaved. not white Anglo-Saxon, <laughs> this country keep, makes special efforts to keep you out of whatever the gains are in this country. Yes. It's systemic. It's everywhere. After Reconstruction, as I said, we were in the seats of power and we were slowly uh, dealt out of it. Look at what's happening right now. We got mayors, we got governors, and people everywhere. Judges, got them everywhere. Everywhere. But nothing happening. But I'm hoping that that won't happen again where we are systematically dealt out of it. We gotta be careful not to let that happen again. That's why it irritates me to no end for somebody to tell me, well, I didn't go vote because my one vote don't count. Every vote counts, every time. Right now, I'm the lead plaintiff in the suit against the state of Louisiana because we didn't get our two congressional districts. And that just happened. Yeah, last summer. But I'm the lead plaintiff in that suit and for the state of Louisiana. Now, now, now can you uh, uh, speak a little bit more about what, what, what's going on with that suit, what that's about? The state of Louisiana, one-third of the population is black. 
I think it's higher, but they say one thirty. Well, 30, 33%. Yeah. We've been at 33% for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> that number will change. Well, let me like, say it this way. Yeah. There's enough black people in the state of Louisiana for us to have two of the six congressional districts that are predominantly black in terms of registration. Okay. In the state of Louisiana. In the state of Louisiana. We only got one now. We only got one. That's Troy, Troy uh, Carter. Carter. We should have two. The legislature purposely, purposely rejected all efforts to draw two majority, minority congressional districts. Cleo tried to introduce some. Other people had some. There, there are a number of ways that you could have done it, and it would have been fine. They refused. So we filed a federal suit. Here we go again. Well, actually, uh, Judge Shelley Dick here in Baton Rouge ruled that the legislature had to redraw those districts because they were unfair and they were unconstitutional. The Fifth Circuit overruled her. There is a suit in the state of Alabama for the same kind of thing. Everybody fighting for the same thing. Yeah. So the Supreme Court or the well, after, I mean, after the Fifth Circuit, I mean, it has to go to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is supposed to review that case in the spring in Alabama. However that case goes will dictate how the Louisiana case goes because it's the same, the same factors involved. I don't have a lot of... Uh, Confidence that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to do what's right because they have shown me in the last couple of years or so that they are not an independent body as they're supposed to be according to the Constitution. They've been showing us that since we've been on this earth, I would think. Well, but they've done some better, you know what I mean? But in the last few years, the court's been taken over by conservatives and they don't believe in being fair and equal. So, we don't know how that suit's going to come out. We just have to wait and see. But in the meantime, for the next 10 years, we still got that one congressional district. Unless, unless the Supreme Court comes out and says, it's unconstitutional and you have to change it now. I don't expect them to do that. I expect them to say, do it at the next census. That's 10 years away. That's what I'm talking about. But anyway, we sued them. And that's where that suit stands right now. Judge Dick's order was going to make the legislature redraw those districts until she was overruled by the Fifth Circuit. So the, the, those, those, those group of people, they're going to fight for what they want, though. I got to give them that, huh? Of course. We got to just fight hard. It's power. Nobody wants to give up power. Nobody ever voluntarily gives up power. They give up power because the people take it away from them. And this is the way you take it away from them. You go to court and you fight and you vote and you put people in who have the same feelings about things that you do. But we can't do that because we don't have the opportunity to select somebody who knows what it is to be in the situation that we are in as black people, okay? 
We can't elect anybody because the other folk are voters. They pack the districts. Uh, they do all they, they gerrymander the districts. They do all kinds of things. They are the Republicans are particularly afraid of the minority vote because we tend to vote Democratic. Let's talk about that. That's a strange phenomenon. Because we was all Republicans at one time. Well, the Republican Party, Republican Party. after Reconstruction, right. was the party of the people of the and people. included black folk. Now they don't include no black folks. <laughs> because I remember 40, something, 40 years or so ago, most of the politicians in Baton Rouge was Democrats. Yeah. Black and white. Yeah. Then a lot of the white politicians started, they run as Democrats. And, and, then, and then they started switching. Yeah. So that's been a, a process, mm -hmm. a calculated process that's been going on for years. Mm -hmm. And it have served them well. Now they done, they done, they, they done did what they had to do. They done moved out. Now they are the Republican Party, and it, and it left us as the, just the Democratic Party. That's right. But what happens, too, is maybe, too, is that we still got a lot of the power, but we don't utilize. We don't utilize because first of all, if I'm if I'm if I'm going to negotiate, if I see some people at the table, I'm not looking at whether black, white, mix, Republican, Democrat, Independent. I'm going to see where I get the best deal. At. Mm -hmm. But but we have not done that. We all seem to align the same and stick to that, and that ain't gonna get that ain't but gonna I, get you. But nothing. I think that's because the Republican Party has not made a sincere effort to involve us and to include us. They don't, they, don't, they don't promote the things that would help our welfare. They could, but they don't. If they did, there would be more blacks in the Republican Party. And let's face it, we need to have blacks in both. Right. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, if we, we do. If you're on one side, you're automatic. But people look at it, what's going to affect me most? The policies by the Republicans or the policies by the Democrats? Well, it's the Democrats. They don't want to talk about social justice and stuff like that. They don't do a very good job of, of actually implementing it, but that's what they talk about. They talk about it. They don't, yeah. they, they don't do nothing, the, but they talk the, about it. The Republicans don't even talk about yeah, it. Yeah, that's true. So, I mean, <laughs> it's a complete turnaround. The Republican Party used to be the party of Lincoln, and that was the party of black folk. Not today. But you know, but to, to watch what happened in the late seventies when it's when I saw the the whites started switching over. parties. But they would run as a Democrat. Hell yeah. So when they would win they go Yeah. Because they couldn't get elected as a right. as a as, as a Republican. Republican back then. Now I blame a lot of this on Edwin Edwards. Because he's the one that came up with this open primary idea. There used to be a Republican primary. The Democratic, Democratic primary. primary. The open primary gave the Republicans a chance. Oh, no, that's what that was. Okay. 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 I don't know if he knew that or, you, or he not. Probably, he probably knew. But that's how they got their strength. You know, just like somebody said, I don't know if Clinton knew that that crime bill was going to put our people in the position they did. He had to have known that. I don't know. The 1994 crime bill that, that three strikes you out and yeah, you know, those yeah, kind of things. Yeah. That it costs you. But, but I, you know, people, people tend to think, okay, the average person is not going to get
get in that situation. But we're getting so many of our people who are getting in that situation until it's killing us. It's killing us. Literally killing yeah. our, our community. Yeah. Our young men don't have dads. Man, I'm looking at all these shootings we're having, man. It's out of control. Every day we're killing each other. We're killing each other. They don't have any coping skills. The only thing they know how to do is shoot. They don't know how to talk to each other. They don't know how to get along with anybody. If you disagree with them, they're ready to shoot you. That's sad. We got we to gotta bring some resolutions to that, though. I mean, we got to figure out. We got to stop talking and, and find solutions to help our community. But you got so many kids having kids. They don't know how to be parents. So their kids don't know how to be parents. They don't even know how to be kids. They want to be grown-ups at 13, 14 years old, shoot people. And they're watching all these doggone video games. That's what it is. That's, I mean, that's not, it's a combination of everything, but I, I can tell you when I had a program behind what they call uh, Mall City or Boncre, Area had a, had a youth program, yeah. and it was mental health substance abuse type of program that we truly impact and made a difference. I'm talking about this program was in the late 90s. I run across so many young men and women who was in the program who still alive who can tell a story about how the program made a difference. And the, the, the key things we did, we brought children from Scotlandville, Easy Town, South Baton Rouge, Zion City, yep. where, where all the problems at right That's now. Right. That's right. And these children showed up, I mean, not no five or ten, I'm talking about many, many children showed up on a, reg, on a daily basis. We sent a bus to pick them up. They came into the facility, no fighting, no foolishness. I'm talking about 12, 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old children, boys and girls, who got along. And we was able to impact, to teach them some things that, you know, they, the mothers, most of the fathers was no longer there in prison, and some of them was deceased. But we served those roles as mothers, uncles, daddies, mm -hmm. and was able to teach them those basic coping skills on Right. You can't just blow out. Right. You just can't, you know, get, you know, we those things gonna happen. Now. Yeah, you gonna get mad, you get frustrated. But, but everybody's gonna run into those kind of yeah, things. Yeah, that's just life. It's how you react yeah, to yeah. it. So that's what we was teaching them how to deal with that. Yeah, you know. Plus, we was teaching them some some other skill levels that can prepare them for tomorrow. We didn't get a chance to do it long enough because they came and shut the, the state camps, the program down, and put me in prison. <laughs> so they don't want, that's what I realized. They don't want you to help. They don't want you to help. They don't want you to help. Don't want you to make that no, difference. I keep saying. They basically told me that. It's systemic. They, they, it's in the system. It's in the institutions. They basically told me that you can run the program, you can't do both. You can't use our money to help them. You can't make money off of them, off of us, and help them. You got to either, we got a place for them. And that's that pipeline that's to right. the prison. That's right. And I was shutting that part down. That's right. I was impacting the whole city of Baton Rouge. Yeah, didn't re didn't realize what I was doing to that level now, until I see it now when I run across the children. So 
But what you just say though is that that systemic thing. But we we are we don't want to harp on that anymore. You know, we talked about the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I said that the bad and the and the ugly were was one and the same. The 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 bad was was what I was talking about. But now the ugly is poverty. The ugly is poverty, and that's that's what's wrong in these these communities. We can't get past being poor. With people not having what they need to live on. Basic needs. Basic needs. And look, food costs, yeah. gas prices now. Yeah. And now the state's talking about doing a flat tax, 30% of your income, or doing a sales tax instead. Now, you know who the sales tax going to hurt? A 30% sales tax? 30%. You know, it's, it's crazy, man. I mean, it ain't going to hurt somebody making a million dollars a year. Because he's got enough money to, to do whatever he wants to do. But you take this person making $15,000 a year and got a family of four. And you got to pay 30% of that for sales taxes. But the other people still making money, the healthcare people, the people who, pharmaceutical people, you know, everybody making money off of you. So, yeah. so it's almost like another form of slavery. It is. It is. Now, let's talk about... You 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 finished, or you working on a memoir? Which one? <laughs> I have written a memoir. A written a memoir. And I know how you found time that you all. I, I had to run you down today to get to make sure you was gonna be here. How you found time to do a memoir? Well, I tell you what helped a lot was the pandemic, when everybody was in the house, not going anywhere, not doing anything. I was either zooming, or writing. And that gave me the time to do the writing. And so I wrote a lot of it in 2020, 2021. Um, I'm in the process now of trying to find a publisher. We're going to get that for you. Okay. <laughs> that going to happen. So I don't know. Um, I don't know if it'll ever get published or not. Oh, but I want to just put down what I thought was what my life was like, what I had been involved in, and what I thought about it because I see it as part historical, part commentary on history and today, and then just part living, because that's kind of the way I lived my life. You know, it involved all of those things. I have been, I have been involved in some, some battles in the community, like the East-West Runway for Ryan Airport, the incorporation of Scotlandville, uh, the breeder tenure hearing that I had to serve as judge for. I mean, those were, those were gut-wrenching kind of issues, man. But I was involved in them, so I tried to chronicle them the best I could uh, through my memoir. You also used the chancellor of Southern University in New Orleans. Well, that's true, too. I mean, you didn't even get to that, that, that story. <laughs> <laughs> Matter of fact, I was with some young men at the table at lunch a few weeks ago, and a guy by the name of Hinton LaSalle. Yeah. Don't tell me you remember him. I remember Hinton LaSalle. He talked about you as his mentor, <laughs> got him on track, and a guy named Lynn Garrett, they just spoke so highly of you. Really? I mean, I remember uh, uh, LaSalle's name. I don't remember what he looked like, but I remember the name. <clears throat> Well, he said that you 
or he's a, he's Doctor Hinton Lasalle. Okay, he lives in Houston, Texas. Yeah, yeah. He, he you the one got him on track. You the one gave him opportunities. Well, you know, I spent forty two years at Southern. I spent thirty years as a chemistry uh, teacher, and then in nineteen ninety one. I left my engineering consulting firm, which I had been at for the le past 11 years, and I went, came to Southern as the Associate Vice Chancellor for Academic Affairs on the Baton Rouge campus. In that position, people like the registrar, financial aid and missions, all reported to me. So I got to see the full breadth of what college education was like I already knew because I was a student myself, but to see it from an administrative point of view. And I saw lots of needs, lots of needs. And we tried to address them, you know. Then in 99, I think it was, I became the vice president, system vice president for academic student affairs for the whole system. And then I listened to Dr. Leon Tarver and I, <laughs> I went to New Orleans for the second time. <laughs> For the second time, so you listen to Doctor Tall as a as an interim chance. I was just supposed to be there for the interim until they got somebody else, you know, as a chancellor, which I had done in two thousand and one. I was there like two months, and they found a new chancellor, Joe Bowie. So I, when Bowie got fired, they asked me to go again. So, okay, I'm going down. I'll be there another two three months until they find a new chancellor, and then I'll come on back to my vice president position it's for the system. Lyman, I get there, and I find out, number one, the College of Education at SUNO, we're about to lose it, because the state has issued a stop and desist order. We could not take any new students in education because the College of Education had 12 years to become accredited by the National Education Association and hadn't done it. I get there, I've got one permanent vice chancellor, the vice chancellor of student affairs. Everybody else, including most of the department chairs, were all interim, so much so that the Southern Association of Schools and Colleges, or Colleges and Schools, called SAC, you heard of SAC, mm -hmm. they accredited all the institutions in the South, had come to SUNO to go through the accreditation process, packed up their bags and walked away and said they weren't coming back again, which means that if we lost our accreditation, we lost all federal funding. So it's, going, it's dead. It's the university going to be dead. The university be dead. I say this to Dr. Tarver. You have got to make me the chancellor so that I can make decisions for the university. We've got to get this place in order or we're going to lose it. So he goes to the board and he proposes that I become the chancellor. I've been there from February to May as the interim. May 13th, I think it was, I became the chancellor, May 12th, something like that. First thing I have to do is hire me a dean of the College of Education. I taught Rose Duhon Sells, who was the dean at Southern, 
and also I think North, one of the other schools in the state, as a dean to come to Suno. Talked to her to come out of retirement. She did. She came out of retirement probably in July. By the Bayou Classic of that same year, we had gotten national accreditation for the College of Education in five months. So either she a bad girl or you a bad boy. Which well, we say? both were. <laughs> you had to work together on that. We convinced SAC to come back, and we got accredited for 10 years. They wasn't coming back. No, no, they were not coming back. They said there was too much instability in the administration. There was not enough permanent people appointed. Everybody was interim. Interim folk can go away anytime. So they walked away. The state, once we got that school accredited, the state reinstated our education program. So we weren't going to lose the College of Education anymore. So you didn't hire permanent people now. Yeah. Not only that, well, we got the accreditation, though. That was a big thing. Yeah, you got to keep the resources okay? coming. Yeah. Not only that, by Bayou Classic, we also had accreditation from SACS. Now, what year was that? 2002. I hate for you telling your university like that. 2002. <laughs> Let the truth be told. Let the truth be told. So Suno is there today, I think doing okay. I don't know. I'm not privy to what, what their situation is. But when I left in 2005, Suno had started to increase its enrollment again. They were accredited for a 10-year period by the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools. The Education Department was credited for the first time ever in its history. We were financially in the strongest shape that we'd ever been in in a long time. My administration had raised $400,000 each year for the past two years. The most they had ever even had pledged was $22,000 before that. $22,000. $22,000. We raised $400,000 the first year of the batch, the second year of the batch. And I think the third year we raised $400,000 also. I'm going to get my friend to tell me they need to put you and your, your information in the, uh, what you call it again? Amistad Museum. <laughs> <laughs> And I'd like to congratulate my dear friend and confidant and my uh, the, someone I've been working for for many, many years. Uh, we worked together, Miss Kathy Hambrick, who's now the new mm -hmm. executive director of, of the, the African American. No, the Amistad Museum. Oh, is she? At Tulane University. I didn't know that. It just happened. It's just okay, because she was the director of the uh, River Road. River Road. Yeah, she, 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 she got together. You know, Kathy? Oh, yes, I know Kathy. Okay, then. Well, she is now the interim director, executive director of Amistad. Of Amistad oh, right. So, we got, so, so, Kathy, if you hear this now, we need to put. <laughs> Tell her I said hello, <laughs> God bless, and great going. Yeah, so she's going to be, she gonna make some big things happen. Oh, yeah. That's how she's yeah. So Yeah. Got, they got the right one. Yeah. Yeah. And we could we thank we congratulate the Amistad for finding and working and giving her someone someone like that a chance to make the Amistad even bigger and better. Well, that's great. So, but you know the the thing about raising that money, the four hundred thousand each year, the state had a program that would allow you to do the endowed chairs, a million dollars. 
you had to raise 400000 and the state would give you 600 But you had to raise 400000 first. So that means we got the million dollars three times, okay? But when I got to Suno, the refrain that I kept hearing when I went uh, in the business community, and I was a, I was a part of the, uh, I wasn't part of the Chamber of Commerce, but I was a part of the, uh, it's not, not the Kiwanis, but the other group. Uh, so you get that not the lions, the other one. I know you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, I, I was a part of them. I was a part of the research institute at at um, at uh, Tulane. I was a part of the World Trade Center. I was into everything, Boy Scouts of America. But you know, Lyman, what it takes is it takes relationships. I got those relationships because I was involved with those people. Mm -hmm. It just didn't happen. No. So the first time we raised $400,000, I was at a Boy Scout meeting one morning where I served, I think, on the executive committee. And I said to the president of Entergy, Louisiana, I said, Bill, I need your help with something. I remember Bill. He said, what? I said, I need you to raise $100,000 for me. He said, what's happening? I told him, what are we going to do? He said, okay. And the night we had our first bash, named after Dr. Emmett Bashful. That's where the bash comes from. That's where the bash comes from. Hold on now, hold on now. Now, people say we're going to have a, 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 what you call it, a bash today. We think that that was just a term that came out. We go, no, that no. was for, for real, for real. Dr. Emmett Bashful, that's where that came from. He was a long time, well, not founder, but... Chance, the first chancellor, the only chance they had for a long time, maybe 20 or some years. In Southern University of New Orleans. In New Orleans. He was the first chancellor, and he stayed there until, uh, I guess, um, maybe Jex was the next one, and then Dolores Spikes after that, and then um, my good friend from Southern Baton Rouge. Um, <sighs> What's the name? Uh, Peoples. Gerald Peoples. Okay. Gerald Peoples. And then Bowie, you know, and then I came after Bowie. But uh, <clears throat> so he said, okay. So the night we had the first bash, we came up $30,000 short. He walked on stage and says, <clears throat> I guarantee the 30000 Integer. Yeah, what was Bill's last name? Bill William, um, gosh, what was Bill's last name? I'm so terrible at names right now. You're doing pretty good. But you know who I'm talking about. I know about. you talked about. I can't remember the name of you. But, yeah. But at 85, you're doing excellent. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> the mind is still sharp as ever. You remember like things like it was yesterday. The only thing I really hate about being at Suno was that I was never able to work constructively with the faculty senate. They just, no matter what I did or how well we did, there was always after the chancellor. Didn't matter whether it was me or somebody else, you know. And I think we could have done so much more had we worked together and not be at odds with each other. Still going in. I know. Anyway, to, to this day. I know. I, I know. I hear about the exact same thing. I know. Like leadership, they don't communicate. They're not working. How are you going to build something if you don't work together? But the one thing that I insisted on when I went to Suno, 
was that Dr. Tarver allowed me to take somebody with me who could ensure the integrity of the finances. You can't do anything without finances and you gotta be honest about it. Academics and finance are the two stalwarts of a university. But, but, but finance drives it. Finance drives it. He allowed me to take the system's top auditor with me when I went, because that's who I wanted. Who was that at the time? Gloria Thompson. <laughs> Just so she, Gloria, Gloria made things happen. Then, uh, so. Gloria went down. It was somebody I could trust. I needed somebody I could trust, because I heard so many bad things about the finances at Suno until I couldn't put my trust in the people who were already there. Because they were the ones that let it get in that position in the first place. So they had to protect themselves. Yeah. yeah. It's like going to be a lot of cover up yeah. going on. So I brought her with me and named her the the, cha the vice chancellor for, for finance. You, and of course, the guy who was already there quit because he, he didn't like the idea of her coming in over him. Yeah. But I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't trust. Man, that's, that's a business move. You're a businessman. You got to protect your interests. That's it. That was a pretty good move. That was, that's it. That's, and that's why we were as strong in finances as we were when I left in 2005. And, and, and uh, you know, you, you're, you're a very intelligent man, but you're a very spiritual man, too. Because I think you still attend church at Camp what that word? At Camphor. Camphor Federal. Camphor, Camphor, Camphor United Methodist. Yeah. You and a dear friend who I interviewed, uh, Julius Bradford and Moore. Moore. The historian. That uh, woman is amazing, man. She is amazing. Great storyteller. Yes. And doesn't forget nothing. My uh, <laughs> shopping. <laughs> 97 is still going That's strong. Right. That's right. I mean, it was amazing to sit there and interview her. She telling stories like, it just, it, just, it just grabbed you and just hold you like, yeah. she's just a great storyteller. And she knows it all because she lived it. Her 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 parents were the founders of, of Canfor. Well, Right. There was like 12 of them, and Bradford was one of them. Yeah, because you told her they even moved to church. Yeah. <laughs> you told that story. But I tell you, one of, one of the interesting stories you told me, like you talk about the word bashes, how y'all named the event y'all had after him, and that we, people still use it to this day. We don't have a bash, you know. But I did not know that the unit, that Southern University, you know, they call it on the bluff. And I'm thinking the bluff was that little area that curves where the water flows and the Mississippi curves into the. Mm -hmm. I said, no, that was named after the plantation owner, Scott Bluff. Oh, <laughs> said, really? Oh, you didn't know that either? No. Oh, no, that's, you, that's a part of the story she was telling us. Like, no. No, I, I never heard that story. No, she, I thought that's why they called it the bluff. Because, you, you know, with the red, the red stick. It's right there. Because the Indians used to use right. that as, as a guidepost. Uh huh. <laughs> I didn't know that's why they called the bluff. <laughs> Scott Bluff, the one who used to own that yeah, land, right? Yeah. It was Scott Bluff Plantation. Oh. Southern University is on, on, it's on, on, the, on the land that was owned by Scott, Scott Bluff, Bluff Plantation. Okay. So that's, what, that's that. where the name Scott Laville come from. I didn't know that. You need to go, you need to go talk to uh, Dr. Bradford well, Moore. Well, I, I talk to Julie all the time, but she didn't tell me that story. <laughs> you need to listen to her podcast. Yeah. Then. Her podcast, she tell it all like that. Okay. But that was just interesting to learn that. Like, I'm thinking, I'm, I thought the bluff was that, you know, that, that, been in, that been in the river. I did too. And they call that the bluff. I just had, I thought it was a, it was a nice ring, like the bluff. We're on the bluff. 
No, you talking about the, the plantation plantations. <laughs> well, plantations were all over this place. Oh, we all were on plantations. Matter of fact, she was telling us all in like every so many miles, not even miles. They was like plantation, plantation, plantation. Yeah. all the way down to Mississippi. Oh, yeah, from North Louisiana all the way down to New Orleans. More than yeah. North Louisiana, it was all up in Arkansas. Yeah, right. everywhere. Yeah, I'd just say North Louisiana, yeah, right. yeah. running with the river. Yeah. So she she just gave it, but Scott Bluff. So when you hear the name Scott Lavere. It's come from the plantation owner, Scott Blood. I'm not surprised about that. But the great thing about it is, this is the highest point in Baton Rouge. It is? She did tell us that too. Yep. So y'all don't flood out here that often? No, we usually don't. Now, if we flood, then all of Baton Rouge is probably going to yeah, flood. Yeah, you need to get out of town. Everybody need to go there. If you're too <laughs> late, might be too late then. Probably, sir. <laughs> well, you know, I mentioned just a little bit earlier about some of the impactful community efforts that I've been involved in. You know, I got started in those community efforts with the Acme Brick Strike back in the 60s, around 69. The Acme? Acme. Acme Brick used to be right up here, uh, where, you know, where you, you, you turn off and go highway uh, by the old uh, Louisiana uh, train school. Oh, well, yeah, you transgoo used to be reformatory. Reformatory, yeah. <laughs> if you drive up uh, Scenic Highway, and when you make that right turn to go by the Louisiana Industrial School, on the right hand, on the left hand side over there, it's where Acme Brick used to be. Well, Acme Brick, of course, made what bricks. Mm -hmm. The people who worked there, the black folk who worked there, was catching hell because they weren't paying them, and they weren't treating them very well. So they went on strike. SAC, First Ward Voters League, Second Ward Voters League, and other groups got together and provided food for the strikers. That's how I got involved in my first Baton Rouge community effort. Because I was one of the people providing food for them and support to them. Finally, they solved that issue and um, Eventually, Acme Brick went out of business here in Baton Rouge. I think they they operate under a different name now somewhere else. Yeah, in South Baton Rouge. In South Baton yeah, Rouge. Yeah, they're still there. Yeah, yeah. They're a major company. Yeah, but they got a different name now. So you knew you knew Mr. Albert Richardson. From Mr. Albert Richardson, worked in worked in the local, worked with the school board, and was in the was a coach. That Coach. name sounds familiar to me. I yeah. probably did. Yeah, I, I just I brought it up because I wanted to see how much you remember. Don't worry about it. Yeah, I probably did uh, know him. But then we went from that to the next issue was Baton Rouge wanted to move the downtown airport. Remember, there used to be a downtown airport yeah. down there. In the, in, of Independence. Yeah. Yes. Right. And they wanted to lengthen the east-west runway. East-west runway came straight over over the subdivision. Were you, were you living at now? Yeah. Plus, it was keeping the school board from, from building a new elementary school called Ryan Elementary, which is right, right there now. Right the airport, right? Right there now, on the corner of, of Amgo <clears throat> Garden Drive and Progress Road. I, we teamed up with A.C. Belton, the second ward, because initially 
all of us up here were in the second ward. And then we later split off and formed SAC and second ward, and we kind of got to, to compete against each other. But that wasn't the intent. Initially, all of us were in the second ward. Um, but A.C. Belton and I took a trip to Dallas. I'm not quite sure why they had me to go. I guess Turnley couldn't go, so he asked me to go. Now tell us, tell us who A.C. Belton was. Well, A.C. Belton, of course, was the man in Scotlandville for many, many years. Uh, he fought for, for uh, Scotlandville. He was the primary force behind trying to incorporate Scotlandville into his own city. But that never happened. That never happened. And probably for the good because we really didn't have the tax base. And that's why. Uh, that's why SAC opposed it. That's why I opposed it. Because we just didn't have the tax base. We thought we did. We thought we had Ryan Airport. We thought we had Sharpers, um, the Sharpers Fair over here on Plank Road. Remember there used to be a shopping center mm -hmm. over there? Now, there's, a store, there's a warehouse over there now. But that used to be Shoppers Fair. I remember. North Park Shopping Center. Okay. okay. We thought we had those two and Exxon and some others, but they took them away. They took the airport away. They, they, they took Shopping they, Fair they away. They did that overnight, too. Well, they didn't do it overnight, but the council took it away. They annexed them into the city. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I heard they did that overnight. Okay. <clears throat> and when they did that, that destroyed the tax base. The only thing left was Southern University. <laughs> we got the, they get their money from the, from the government okay. too. Yeah. So we fought that. And instead, we pushed to get incorporated into the city, which we finally did. I was, I was, I was very intimate involved in that. You know. Uh, and then came the interstate. Oh, what do you know about the interstate? We fought the interstate, man. We fought that interstate like mad. We saw what they did to Valley Park. There's only about two streets in Valley Park that, that runs all the way through Valley Park. All the others are cut off at the interstate. Do you realize that? Didn't think about that like that. We said, you are not gonna do that to Dixie and Scotlandville. We're not gonna let you do that to Dixie and Scotlandville. That's why that, that uh, interstate is elevated. Oh, they had to bring it over. Okay. You ain't going to cut us off like that. You ain't going to let you cut that off like that. We fought that thing, man, and fought that thing. And one of the good things that came out of it was, you see that park system that we have on the interstate here in Scotlandville? Mm -hmm. That was the first time the federal government had ever allowed such a system to be built at an interstate highway. Some of that park, was it Scottway Park? The Scottsdale Park. Scottsdale Park. Scottsdale Park. Yeah, it's over on the other side to where the airport is. Yeah, well, it's it's it's, it's on the on the east side of the interstate. Right. It goes all the way down through Seventy Second Street and on yeah, down into the Scenic banks, Highway. Yes. In the banks. Okay. It goes on down in the banks. Okay. It runs a long way. Yeah. yeah. But that was the only time. That was the first time that was allowed to happen. But that happened because of the opposition that we put up against that. Cause that, that's why they, that's why they had to elevate it, 
in because no, know, they elevated so they wouldn't cut the streets off. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. so not because they got a you can go you can walk you can walk under there now. Well, not only walk under there, you can drive, drive under there too on the yeah. Hollywood and all these streets, you know. So, but if they it was up to them, they'd have shut it all off. Yeah, it'd have been on ground. If it's on ground, you 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 cut all the streets off. So we fought that fight. We won that one, too. I mean, then came the cooperation of Scotlandville. Well, you know, no, we can't do that, so we got to go in the city. So we finally won that one, and we got in the city. The next thing that came up was the post office. You know, the post office used to be on the corner of 78th and City Highway, where Food Towns supermarket used to be. Okay. They wanted to move it. Turnley was a senator. He had gone all the way to Mickey Leland, who was in Congress and was chairman of the post office committee, to get that post office to stay in Scotlandville. Because we recognized, man, people needed to be where they could walk to the post office. You know? That was economic development for Scotlandville. They had the post office in Scotlandville. Unfortunately, Turnley lost the senatorial race to Cleo Fields. The post office is now on the corner of Plank Road and Hooper. We're on the other side. It's still called the Scotlandville Post Office, but it's not Scotlandville. It's not in Scotlandville. So that's not that's not where y'all wanted it. Mm-hmm. All that was a, we wanted to stay where it was because all that helped to kill the community. Yeah. Because yes. was a, when I even came here in the mid seventies, Scotlandville was a thriving community. Twenty five thousand people in Scotlandville when I came. We had everything we needed. We had a grocery store. Sewer grocery. Yeah, no, no, yeah. food town. Food town, yeah, food town here. And sewers too, but food town was the big one. Right. We had pharmacies. We had pools pharmacy. Yeah, and plus, we, we we was owning everything for the most part. That's what I'm talking about. This is all this, us. This is a thriving community. This is all us. Horatio Thomas, Thompson had gas his, station. his, his uh, gas station mm-hmm. and his apartments. Uh, we had doctors. We had lawyers. We had everything. Scotlandville was a contained, self-contained, self-contained thriving community. community. Thriving. It took care of itself. Yes. Slowly but surely just eroded away. <clears throat> and I blame a lot of our young people for that. Some of it was not their fault because they had to leave town to go find somewhere to work, which means they left Scotlandville. Because right. you know, you, you push, you encourage them to get ed- education. So right. I got what I'm, I, I can't find that kind of work. Others, the one I blame, are the ones who wanted to go out with the white folk and you know didn't want to live in Scotlandville. So-called upscale neighborhoods yeah. that they wouldn't even welcome in. Right. And flooded, getting flooded. <laughs> you don't even worry about getting flooded over here. <laughs> well, I mean, we worry about it, but luckily we haven't. Yeah, okay. We haven't. And plus, you know, they always promote North Louisiana like it's violent. That's all. That's, that's not much crime in North Louisiana. I mean, maybe on the way here. No way. But not in North know, Louisiana. And people North don't, Rouge, they, I mean. they don't know about Scotlandville. They just read about it, hear about it, and they think it's terrible. I've lived here, what, since 1964. 65, really. I don't want to move anyplace else. Now, unfortunately, you know, a number of us are dying, and the people who are coming in don't have the same camaraderie and attitude and property upkeep of values as we have. 
that's unfortunate, but these are the youngsters, you know? These are the youngsters. Now, now you, when, I got in here, when I got here today, you were just coming back. You were on the, on the go, on the move as usual. Now, <laughs> yes. now tell everybody where, where you just come from this morning. Well, uh, you know, I'm a member of what is known as the 1880 Society at Southern University. The 1880 Society is a part of the Southern University Foundation and it raises money for Southern University and provides support for students in the form of scholarships or whatever, you know. So this morning, three of us uh, was on the campus doing a promotional piece for the 1880 Society. Who the other two? Oh, gosh. Just because I asked. Yeah, uh, I don't know them. Okay. Uh, one of them is, a, is a, another 1880 Society member. One young lady, and I've forgotten her name, works for the, the uh, State Senate down at the Capitol. But we were just trying to uh, get out there why we support the 1880 Society and try to get people to understand we need them to just give back to the university. Tell me, tell me what happened in the 1880. Well, in the 1880s, some university came into existence in New Orleans, moved to Baton Rouge in 1914 on the bluff. <laughs> now, now you know that, right? Now I know that, yeah. <laughs> to the bluff plantation. And you know they thought they were putting us way out in the country. Oh, right. right. It, was, it was the country okay. back then. Yeah. It would be beautiful. Now they, they wish they had this. I know. I know. I know. Mm -hmm. I know. And so uh, 1880, this is when it was, uh, I came into existence by a legislative act. And... Uh, and the first president of Southern was, I had the name. He's well, J.S. Clark, huh? No, before Dr. Clark. Well, before Dr. Clark, when he was in New Orleans, yeah. No, he, no, he, he's from Donaldsonville, Louisiana. Yeah. Um, uh, J.S. was... Never. No, 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 not Nettleville. No, I forgot the name, but he's from Donaldsonville, Louisiana. Okay. Well, that must have been when they were in, that was when they were in New Orleans. When they moved to Baton Rouge, I think J.S. Clark became the president. Dr. Clark was the first. J.S. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then Felton took over after. Felton was J.S.'s son. Okay. And when I came to Southern, Felton was the president. So you was under Felton. Under Felton. So you was here when they had the, uh, did you participate in the, what that was again? The, the Chris store downtown. You no. That was before, that was before you. No, they, they did it just before I got here. I didn't get here until September of 63. They had done it, I think, a little earlier than that. Yeah, 1960, 61. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I knew about, I didn't know about Crass, but I knew about the Sidians okay. in the South. As a matter of fact, let me just give you a little vignette. I came from Washington, D.C. One afternoon, my roommate and I had gone downtown for something. We were on our way back to Scotlandville. Passed a, couple, uh, a police car down around Choctaw and Scenic Highway. The interstate wasn't in existence then, so you, everything came up Scenic Highway. And uh, I imagine they saw my license plate being from D.C. And they saw that we were two black guys in the car. 
They followed us all the way back to Scotlandville. We were living on Pentail Street at the time in Scotlandville. And followed us right up to our house. Watched us walk in the house and sat out there for a while watching the house. I, I, you know, I have to attribute that to the fact that I had a DC license plate on my car and not to the fact that we were black. That's what you like to think. That's what I like to think. Okay. But it might have been both. <laughs> they probably thought we were here for civil rights. Everybody do a little bit. You can only do so much. You do your best. Once you've done your best, you can't do any more. So don't second guess yourself. Don't wish I had a, I could have, all that sort of stuff. I don't do that. Because I've already given it my best. So if it ain't good enough, there it is anyway. But if everybody just do a little something, that's what you say. We can, we can make a big difference. Yes. And that's the, that's where you want your life to be remembered. That's good. That you just done the, 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 the best that you can do, that you knew that I could do, to make a difference in your community. And I hope I have. I'm not bragging about what I have done. I don't know how much difference it make. May not make any. But to me, it was worth doing. And your life been enriched, and many people been enriched by what you've done, what you stood for, and what you continue to do. I mean, you, at 85, you've got a lot of energy. Your mind is still sharp as ever. So you got a lot more work to do. Well, so your, your days are not over. I'm gonna do it as long as I can. Your, I'm gonna do it as long as I can. Is your wife still with you? No, my wife died 2018. 2018, right? Yeah, at the time, right before the COVID. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. yeah, right before COVID. So, that's even so it's more. just me. So, just, so you have a reason to get up and get up. You don't need sitting around here. No, you're sitting around. You know, um, I'm, you know, I'm involved with my church very actively. I'm the, the lay leader at my church, which is the top person after the pastor. Uh, I'm a member of Together Baton Rouge. So you working with them? I'm working okay. at Together Baton Rouge. Okay. I'm one of the founding members, most. I'm on the civil service board for police and fire. And those things keep me busy, and I do a lot of Zoom. <laughs> I'm a Kauanian, you know. I just I just finished a three year term as president of Early Rise Kiwanis. That's not Baton Rouge chapter. That's not Baton Rouge. Well, we only have one black chapter in, in Baton Rouge. Okay. Yeah. okay. And that's us. That's, that's not what my girl Laura Burger was part of. Yeah, I think she was in South Baton Rouge. South Baton Rouge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you you so you staying active, staying involved, keep the mind moving, keep the yeah. mind sharp. Yeah. You don't. If you don't use it, you lose it. Now, what can we do, you think, to to help our young people to move move them forward? And you know, to, I mean, you know, we 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 older now, but something still have to be done. So, what what do you think we can do? To you know, I wish I knew the answer to that because they don't want to listen to us. They don't want to listen to us, old heads. Oh, you old folk, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, they don't value experience. What they don't know is that life tends to repeat itself. Hmm. 
And if you don't know it, you're going to make the same mistake that somebody else made. That's not the way life should be lived. It should be lived so that you don't make mistakes that I made or somebody else made because you know better. And you spend your time and energy moving forward and ahead, not making the same mistakes over and over again. We got to take away some of these guns that we got. We got too many guns on the streets. And in, in our society, we head to the wild, wild west again. And we got to stop these kids from all of this videos and TikTok and Facebook and Instagram and all that stuff. We, we disconnected from, 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 each, from each other. From we each connected other. to. Yeah. What do you call that? The, the, the AI? The AI. Artificial, Artificial intelligence. Controlling it. I mean, you know, you play these games, you kill the bad guy or the good guy right today, and tomorrow you play the game again, he's back. He ain't back in real life. They don't understand the difference. They don't understand so, the difference. So, and, and we understand, and understandably so, we know that they're young. And for, for young people, and we always, because we always there, we think we're invincible. Mm -hmm. You know, I ain't gonna die. Mm -hmm. and, and that, so a lot of these young men can, can be really our community leaders that can be community leaders. But even the military know the value, the power, the importance of young people, because they take them at that early age. Oh, of course. Of course. And get them ready to fight for them. Yeah. But you see, the, the, the village used to take care of that. The village. My mom and my dad told adult people who were in our circle, if that boy does something wrong, you whip his tail. Then you send him to me. Then you send him to me. And I got another one. You don't hear that kind of talk anymore. I mean... I know parents who've gone to the school and cursed the teachers out in front of their first and second grade kids. I thought that was a beautiful, good thing. Something wrong. My child wouldn't do nothing wrong. My child didn't do that. Hell, kids do things all the time. Especially they don't know any better. So, I wish I had the answer to that line, but I don't. I don't, man. We just have to keep trying. There's one salvation I see for us as a people, and not just black people or Asian people or brown people, everybody. And that is that the first person who ever questioned the validity and the veracity of the young uh, people was Socrates. And we're still here. Hmm. And that was 700 BC. But we're still here. So, I think God has a design for us. Only He knows what it is. Each of us have our own place in that design. We don't know what that place is. But we need to be trying to find it. And live a Christian life. You can be civil to each other, you know. You don't have to kill each other. You don't have to fight each other. You don't have to do mean things to people. I feel like that I can talk to anybody, no matter what your station in life is. 
whether you're a beggar on the street or you, whether you're wearing a $5,000 suit. And I can deal with you. And I feel comfortable doing it. Mm -hmm. Well, some kind of way we need to make that connection to let our youth know that they have a greater purpose. I wish we could do it, man. I sure wish we could do it. Okay. And if you know, if these, if these um, platforms, these social platforms, really wanted to do what was right, that's what they would be doing. That's what they would be doing. Teaching our kids how to be responsible and so on. Mm -hmm. But that's not what they're about. They're about money. Pure. It's just money. It's just money. And they never get enough. I don't care how many billions you got, they never have enough. And nobody definitely don't want the young mind of our youth to develop. But they take everything we got. Right? Yeah. From the music, we create the music. Yeah. They take it. Well, the dance. They never want us to read, right? So that hadn't changed. No. We ain't up with the system now. Like I said, the more things change, the more it stays the same. <laughs> well, I'd like to thank a dear friend, a brother, for allowing me to come into his home today and have opportunity to sit here to the feet of the bastard, for real. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I've been so honored and privileged to have had this opportunity. And i let, let you know that you've always been a very powerful figure, male figure in my life that I look forward to back, back then, even to this day, because I always knew you were somebody who was at the community at heart. He was always just wanting to do the right thing. Thank you. And it was a pleasure sitting talking to you. You know, I get started on this stuff and I can go for hours, you know. But uh, I appreciate <laughs> it. We can talk a little longer. That's what we got so much more to talk about. Uh, I think that's enough. <laughs> As you all know, this is one of our living legends. And, and have lived, have practiced what he preached and lived the life that have exemplified a leader, uh, a man who loved his people, loved his community. And I'd like to thank Dr. Press Robinson for allowing me to come in here. My pleasure, and thank you for doing it. Man can shackle the hand, man can shackle the feet, but only you can shackle the mind. The mind is free to travel wherever you dare to take it. Welcome to Count Time Podcast. 